tonight we are on page 11 of the outline as we deal with uh, Revelation 12, 13, and 14 tonight, doing uh, a little reviewing. We uh, said that the book of Revelation is made up of seven sections and that uh, each is covering basically the same period of time, the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Uh, but they're treating it from a different standpoint. Uh, it's like seven shots taken of the same landscape from different angles. And uh, this is called the principle of parallelism. That's B.B. Warfield's uh, word there as he teaches about it, but it's also Hendrickson and so on. And uh, John Stott in uh, his uh, book, Men with a Message, says... The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls probably cover the same historic period, historical period, but with a different message. Your memory starts off, and uh, you've got the Christ among the lampstands, a scene that John sees, and uh, Christ among seven lampstands, and then you get these seven letters to the seven churches. And we said that uh, those were not seven different periods of church history but that rather those were churches of that day, but the different conditions in those churches was picturing the whole church throughout the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming and the conditions that would exist in the whole church. Some of the church would be lukewarm, some of the church would be persecuted but faithful, and so on. Uh, different conditions. And uh, Christ is constantly among his church, the lampstand, and he's... The, the priest in the Old Testament, he was to tend the lamps. He was to uh, uh, make sure they were burning brightly and so on. And Christ is tending his church and he rebukes where rebuke is needed and he encourages where encouragement is needed and so on. Well, as the church uh, holds out the light during the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming as it preaches the gospel, what does the world do? And uh, we, before we moved into that, you remember we said that John is caught up to heaven in chapter 4, and he sees a throne, and everything is surrounding the throne. Twenty-four elders, and, uh, and uh, then all of creatures, the angels and everything. And uh, then the lamb approaches, he sees a lamb that has been slain, he approaches uh, him that sits on the throne, and there's given this scroll that's written inside and outside, and uh, it says, who's able to take the scroll? And the lamb is. And he takes it and he begins to open the seals on the scroll. And we said, that's the plan of God. Uh, that uh, the lamb was able to, of course, carry out the, the death and resurrection and so on. But uh, as he opens these seals, different horses come riding out, four horsemen. And uh, the first one is a white horse. It comes out riding into conquering. So on. we said, that's Christ as he goes forth to conquer. But then the second horse uh, and the third horse were it was a persecution of Christians. As the church holds out the light, the world persecutes the church. And uh, it, the persecution takes the form of martyrdom or uh, imprisonment or that, but it also takes the form of economic persecution, which is what the third horse was. And uh, then the fourth horse was death. And the following death was Hades or the separation of the soul from the body. Uh, something that Christians experience, but that everybody experiences death. Uh, then uh, the last seal that was open 
you had as it opens, you have seven different trumpets. Now, these seals, again, they're covering the same period that uh, we talked about before, this whole period between the first and second coming of Christ. This persecution and so on and death, that's going on during that whole period of time. But then the uh, seals, as a seal, uh, as a trumpet, I'm sorry, the last seal was at seven trumpets. As a trumpet is blown, you'll find a third of agriculture is destroyed, and then a third of all the life in the sea is destroyed, and so on. Not the whole, just a third. What does God do when the world persecutes the church? Well, trumpets warn, and God warns the world with judgments that fall on the world. And uh, that's God calling the world to repentance, whether it's a plague, uh, whether it's uh, uh, warfare, whether it's uh, uh, a flood, whatever it may be. Uh, every time something like that happens, that's God's judgment calling the world to turn to Him. You remember in, in Luke 13 when Jesus uh, told him about uh, these uh, people who were killed by Pilate and uh, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus said, what do you think that means? you think those men were sinners above all other men? I say unto you, no, uh, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Are those 18 men on whom the tower fell? Do you think that means they were sinners above all others? No, but I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. In other words, every time something like that happens, every time there's a plague, every time there's... A, tragedy of some type or uh, flood or whatever it has a voice it has a message the message isn't necessarily those people were so evil God did it sometimes that's the message like with Sodom and Gomorrah and so on but it's got a message to all the rest of us repent there's a judgment day coming Uh, are you right with God and so when these things happen uh, that's God uh, bringing these things to pass. You remember we looked at Amos where God sent all these plagues and things and war to Israel to get them to repent. They said, yet you've not turned unto me. I sent a plague, yet you've not returned unto me. Uh, your young men I've killed with a sword, yet you've not returned unto me. Therefore, prepare to meet your God. Now I'm really going to step in in judgment and you're going to stand before me. So, uh, the same period of time. Now you remember as we got to the end of chapter 11 we had two witnesses and uh, those two witnesses represented uh, there's not two individuals Uh, it's the same period of time the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ and it's picturing the church witnessing during that period of time but it says it goes on for 42 months uh, or three and a half years because of a similar period in the Old Testament in Elijah's day when uh, the church was being persecuted by Ahab and Jezebel and yet God protected the church and and uh, God demonstrated the power of his word in an unusual way through Elijah and Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years also if you when when the king sent men to take Elijah uh, and say man of God the king wants to see you come down he says if I'm a man of God let fire come down and uh, devour you and fire, fire would come down well these, these two witnesses go out it says they have power to shut up heaven, that it not rain, and then it also says that if you approach them while fire comes out of their mouths and, and slays you. Well, again, that's not two individuals. That's the church witnessing throughout this whole period of time. Jesus sent them out two by two. 
And, but at the end of their testimony, when they finish their testimony, then they're overcome. And they lay on the streets of that great city, Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord Jesus was crucified. They say, well, he's crucified in Jerusalem. Well, he's crucified by the world, in a sense, uh, versus the true believers. And, uh, and there'll come a time when the church has finished his testimony. And at that point, God will let the church be overcome, not in the sense that uh, you won't still have true believers here, but in the sense of they won't be able to carry on an uh, active, outward witnessing. Uh, it'd be more like a country where the church has been driven underground, uh, and so on. Uh, so that's, that's what's pictured there. Now we come to chapter 12. Chapter 12. And uh, here... We have a scene uh, with uh, <clears throat> three main characters. Uh, you have a dragon, you have uh, a woman, you have a man-child. And uh, we can kind of break this up by the activities of the dragon. First you have the dragon standing before the woman. Then you have the dragon falling uh, out of heaven. And uh, then you have the dragon chasing the woman. Uh, so here's uh, the opening part of that in uh, uh, verses 1 to 6, the dragon standing. It says uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Uh, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Uh, he, on his heads, heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Uh, the, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Now, <clears throat> let's uh, <clears throat> take this, uh, what does this mean? We've got these three characters, the woman, the dragon, and the child. Let's take the more obvious ones. Who is the child? Well, obviously the child is the Lord Jesus Christ, who's born, and then his life is kind of uh, condensed here. He's born, and he's caught up to heaven. It leaves out his life, his death, his resurrection, but he ascends, and he's to rule all nations. Well, this is the Messiah. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, second, you have the red dragon, and uh, we're told who he is. In verse 9, it says... Uh, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Uh, so we know uh, who this is. And uh, you think of, of uh, the dragon waiting before the woman to kill her child as soon as he be born. Uh, well, think of when Jesus was born, how uh, Herod tried to kill him. That's just one such instance of the dragon trying to do that and actually had the dragon in the Old Testament trying to wipe out uh, the Davidic line a number of times through which Christ was to come, things of that nature. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, so the dragon was constantly uh, trying uh, to slay Christ. And uh, so we, we know what that represents. <clears throat> but notice here where it says about the dragon. It uh, says in verse 3, An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Uh, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. What would that be? That's the, that's the fall of the angels with him. A third of the angels who joined Satan in his rebellion against God before the world was ever created, uh, before man was ever created. Uh, that, uh, uh, that's what's being pictured there. So these stars that are flung down to earth, that's the original fall of Satan and his angels. That third of the stars being swept to, out of heaven. Now, uh, the uh, radiant woman, who is she? The church. You can see how you, your initial reaction would be say, well, that's Mary. But it's not Mary as you look. Look at verse uh, 17. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Uh, this woman's children are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's the church. Now, this woman uh, is not, you say, well, how could the church bring forth Christ? you got to remember the church is in both Old and New Testament. In other words, the church is the true Israel. We're the, we're the children of Abraham today. And all true believers uh, from the fall of Adam on are part of the church. And you read in Acts 7 about the church in the wilderness, referring to during the Exodus, the people of God who were in the wilderness and so on. So the church is the true believers in the world throughout all of history. And it's, it's Israel in a sense, it's the Jews, the true Jews in a sense, who brought forth Jesus. And we're told salvation is of the Jews in that sense. And... Uh, uh, so this is, is not speaking of Mary uh, per se. And uh, Mary didn't go into the wilderness and so on where she was protected for three and a half years. Now, uh, let's... Uh, uh, we see this uh, first scene here the, with the three characters and Satan standing. Notice the second scene where you have Satan being cast out. In verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now that's not the original fall of Satan. That's a fall of Satan in connection with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what's being pictured there. Uh, <clears throat> he had already drugged the third of the stars, and he's he got him already waiting, trying to kill Christ. This is taking place after that. Uh, and uh, you say, well, <clears throat> uh, didn't think of 
Satan as being in heaven after his original fall. Well, look, look at what he does there. It says in verse 10, uh, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Now have come uh, salvation and the kingdom of our God. Remember, Jesus said, when he came, he said, The kingdom of God is at hand, you know. And uh, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself, and so on. The kingdom, the kingdom existed from the fall of Adam on. True believers were in the kingdom, Abraham and David and so on. But it kept in the Old Testament, kept talking about a time when God was going to set up a kingdom that would conquer all other kingdoms and would incorporate people from every tongue and tribe and nation. That, that phase of the kingdom that Christ was going to usher in and that we are a part of, uh, that would be characterized by the power of the Spirit in a new way and so on. Uh, that's what happened when Christ died and was raised and ascended to heaven. He said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, and so on. Uh, this is uh, what's being spoken of here. And uh, it says, uh, uh, For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And notice from his original fall, to this point where he's cast out what's he been doing among other things he's been accusing the brothers day and night before God accusing true believers uh, well what would he say to God well he would say God what in the world business do you have having Abraham up here what is David doing up here what what is Jeremiah doing up here aren't you a aren't you a faithful God faithful to your word aren't you a just God aren't these men sinners how can you forgive sin. A lamb's blood can't take away a man's sin. You're not just. Either uh, you're unjust uh, or you must send these to my kingdom. And uh, they accused him day and night. But once Christ died, that accusation lost any validity. Uh, There's a little poem that I've got somewhere here that I've used many times, but uh, to me, it, it communicates this point uh, very well. It says, I sinned, and straightway, post-haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned. Tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death, for thou hast said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O Lord, was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, Each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold, my hands, my side, uh, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne and Satan flew away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against that love for every word my dear Lord spoke was true. And all God's people said, Amen. And so uh, here's here he's cast down in connection with Christ's birth, death, resurrection, and ascension. And uh, the 
ushering in of the kingdom in its new phase. It took place at Christ's first coming. Now, uh, let me, uh, uh, let's look at the, uh, well, let me, hold your place here and uh, look at uh, John chapter 12 and verse 31. John chapter 12 and verse 31. And uh, here's what Jesus says. It says, Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Speaking of Satan. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, Jesus said, it is first coming as he's approaching his death. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And we're told that Christ openly triumphed over him uh, in his resurrection and so on. Um, so, uh, with Christ's first coming, his birth, atonement, ascension, two things happen as we have it in this scene in Revelation 12. One, the woman, the church, flees into the wilderness where she's nourished for 1260 days. Verse 6 there. It says uh, that the woman fled into a desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. That's that same three and a half year period that we've looked at before. So what's happening during this three and a half year period? Uh, the witnesses are witnessing. The church is holding out the light here. It's similar to this period in the Old Testament when Elijah demonstrated the power of God's word and uh, when God protected his church, although uh, persecuted, yet it couldn't be overcome in a sense. You remember, Elijah said, Lord, I'm the only one left. And the Lord said, no, you're not. I have 7,000 that I have reserved for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Elijah said, well, why don't they stand up? <laughs> and the uh, Lord had them. And he, remember, they were... Uh, they were being hidden in a cave. Uh, prophets were. 100 prophets were being hidden out and fed by one of Ahab's uh, people in charge of getting food for folks. He didn't know he was feeding these prophets of the true God. And uh, so they were nourished and protected, although under attack. Well, that's a picture of what the church would be during this whole period between Christ's first coming and second coming. It would demonstrate the power of God's word it would be persecuted by Satan, but it'd be protected. It'd be in a tough situation in the desert, but nourished and protected by God. So this is that same period that's being pictured here. Uh, now, uh, the third scene is uh, the dragon pursuing the woman. In uh, verse 13, it says... Uh, well, excuse me, let's look at verse 12. I didn't cover verse 12. Uh, that's verse 11. They overcame him. They, he says he accuses them before God day and night, but they overcame him uh, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They were faithful, although persecuted, and uh, they did not love their lives uh, so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice, because the accuser of the brethren is cast down, and no longer can he validly make that accusation. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, 
Uh, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Apparently, Satan knows how this whole thing is going to come out. Uh, but he's filled with fury as he comes down to attack the church. Yes? Do you think he really knows or he just knows he's a loser? Well, I don't know that he knows the details of how he's going to lose, but... Uh, Apparently he knows. You think of when Jesus cast out demons and uh, they would plead with him not to. Uh, they say, oh, thou come to torment us before the time. There is a time coming when we're to be tormented. We're to be assigned to hell and kept there. Uh, you come to torment us before the time. So seemingly he knows how this whole thing is going to come out. Uh, <clears throat> he knows his time is short. Now, uh, the you have them him pursuing the woman in verse 13 when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time times and a half a time one year and two more years and a half a year, three years, three and a half years, back to the same 42 months or 1260 days. And uh, it says, uh, out of the serpent's reach. Then the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Think of the river of lies, the river of false teaching, and all this persecution that the devil spews out. But uh, he cannot overcome the church. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And there will come a day when the church will be silenced as far as its testimony will be finished. But meanwhile, he attacks. But, uh, you know, the Lord talks about uh, giving uh, wings here of a great eagle. That he would carry his people on eagle's wings. So he protects and he nourishes them. Uh, as uh, they were nourished there in Elijah's day and so on now uh, let me uh, well let's keep reading it says uh, that in verse 17 then the woman was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus he cannot destroy the church so he's going to attack the individual believer and do everything he can to to wipe out the individual believer. And again, uh, these are those who uh, obey God. They, they bring forth fruit worthy, worthy of their faith, worthy of repentance. They, uh, we're not saved by works, but our works evidence the genuineness of our faith. So they are ones here who, it says, they obey God, and those who obey God's commands, and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. They trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, and by grace through faith. Uh, now, uh, let me read you a, uh, here's a, here's a book that would take the position that everything from chapter 4 on is yet to happen. It will be the seven-year tribulation uh, that will take place with the rapture of the church. When Christ comes back, according to this view, the dispensational premillennial view when Christ comes back which is Tim LaHaye and so many of your popular books that are being written uh, Left Behind and so on That's, I saw he sold two million of those okay so uh, thank God gosh I'd write a book like that no <laughs> uh, 
Tim's a great guy, and uh, but anyway, he's got uh, <clears throat> he's got everything yet to happen that we've been reading about here from chapter four on. That'll happen after the church is raptured. Now we just read here about this attack on the woman taking place in connection with the first coming of Jesus Christ, with his ascension and so on, and then the devil attacks the woman. Well, and we've already obviously moved back to the birth of Christ here. And here's Newell, here's his comment on this. He says, The woman flees to the wilderness. If we do not understand prophecy, we make Israel's, he says this is Israel, meaning the nation of Israel, not talking about the true Israel, but the nation of Israel. We make Israel's fleeing immediately consequent upon our Lord's ascension. He says, if you just read this, and you say, well, that's Israel, which he says it's the nation of Israel. And see, that's what they've got to say, because they've got Israel being protected by God and being converted, and 144,000 Jews evangelizing the rest of the world after the church is gone. So this has got to be the nation of Israel, according to his view. Okay, or Tim LaHaye's or whoever. And uh, so this can't take place right after the ascension. This has got to, you've got to have this whole period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ inserted in there before this takes place, according to that view. You understand what I'm saying? And here's what it says. He says, if you, didn't, if you don't understand prophecy, you'll make Israel's fleeing immediately consequent upon our Lord's ascension. But instead of this, we find Jews in the book of Acts long and steadfastly resisting and persecuting those who are really the godly remnant of Israel. He says the nation, instead of being protected by God, it was persecuting God's people. Uh, He says, therefore, we must see between verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 12 the whole stretch of history from our Lord's ascension to the yet future great tribulation. So you've got to put 1,900 years between verse 5 and verse 6 according to that view. Um, Now, uh, let's move on. Uh, to uh, well if you think about the conclusion we can just draw from what we've read about here one obvious conclusion is we move behind the scenes we saw the church holding out the light we saw the world persecuting the church and then we saw these judgments that God sends on the world throughout this whole period of time as these trumpets are blown in one third of the agriculture now we move behind the scenes to see the animosity here of the world towards the church is really Satan stirring up the world to this and all uh, it's really Satan versus Christ here. And uh, there are two great forces at war here, Christ and Satan. And uh, for believers, this attack is not only against the church, but against individual Christians. And so we've got to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice he goes with great fury after the seed of the woman here. And uh, he is very, very serious. And uh, we must... Uh, Uh, put on the armor of God. But when we do that, we will overcome. We will overcome. Luther says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, you know. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And so on. And uh, that's exactly right. Uh, Now, let's uh, look at the next section, which is, we hit the two allies of the dragon. Uh, The first beast and the second beast. This is in chapter 13. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, 
I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and each head a blasph- on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and throne with in great authority. The dragon and the beast are not the same thing here. The dragon gives the beast its power and its authority. Now, what is this beast? Well, this beast is not an individual, as Newell would say here. He would say this beast is an individual. No, this beast is the anti-Christian persecution uh, that's been going on throughout history. Uh, That's what's being symbolized here. When you think about, well, uh, how does it relate there to uh, chapter 11 when the two witnesses are overcome? Well, right, that at some point the beast will be effective in overcoming the church and its witness. And at that point, there will be an individual. This isn't brought out here. But there will be an individual who's heading up this persecution of the church, namely the Antichrist. There will be an individual. We'll look at that further along in the book here, but not not tonight, but... uh, uh, you read about the Antichrist elsewhere in Scripture, and, and uh, the final form of the persecution, and when the when the church is being overcome there finally, finish having finished his testimony, you'll have the Antichrist involved heading up this uh, this beast in a sense, an individual at that point. But meanwhile, this this beast has been around for years, and as he's uh, Satan has inspired him and empowered him. The ten horns with the crowns and the seven heads each. Uh, with names of blasphemy. These are successive world governments persecuting the church. You notice how I had, uh, he's like a leopard and then like a lion and like a bear and so on. Well, if you read the book of Daniel, you've got successive governments. You've got your Babylonian government, then you've got your Medio Persian government, then you've got your Greek government, you've got your Rome government, and each of these is a different form. Uh, one's a lion, another's a beast, and so on. Another is a, a leopard, another's a bear. Medio Persian was a bear, and so on. So here we've combined them all into this beast. All those were persecuting Christians, and here we combine them all and just this picture of the world persecuting the church. This dragon has ten horns, seven heads, but his crowns are on his heads. Uh, in, this, in the beast, the persecuting power of Satan becomes visible in a sense. Uh, these blasphemies, there'd be claims to divinity that want, these emperors would want men to worship them and those kind of things. Now, in verse 3, one of the heads gets wounded. It says, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Now, this head that was wounded, likely that was the Roman government during John's day. Nero persecuted Christians, 1950, I mean, uh, uh, persecuted Christians from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. Persecution, at that point he committed suicide, and persecution ceased for time until uh, uh, Domitian came along in 81 to 96 AD and you had another persecution that followed uh, him. So here was a temporary easing of this but then the wound is healed so to speak. Its authority is directly from Satan the prince of this world as we've seen. Its message blasphemies against God against his church its task to make war against the saints. And notice it says in uh, verse 5 Oh, actually, let's back up to verse 4. Men worship the dragon because he has given authority to the beast. They worship Satan. They also worship the beast, and they ask 
Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Here we've got this same three and a half year period of time, the period that the two witnesses are witnessing, the period that the woman is persecuted but protected. So this is this whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. It says, uh, verse 7, excuse me, verse uh, 6, He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So there will be a, a point, because he kills us all along, all along, but he doesn't really overcome the true believer. They overcome. But at some point uh, there will be this overcoming of the two witnesses as we've seen and the church will in a sense lie dead on the streets uh, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast uh, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world he who has an ear to hear let him hear if anyone is to go into captivity into captivity he will go if anyone is to be killed with a sword with a sword he will be killed now, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints the result of the power given to this world as it persecutes the church, people will, they won't, they won't, they don't want to stand against the world. Only those who will stand against it will be those who have been sealed by God. Those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb. And they will stand. Others will bow down. Others will not want to break with the world. You have here this fact that it calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Uh, that's what we're to do, and he will keep us. Now, you get the next beast in verse 11. The beast out of the earth. That was the one out of the sea. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, this second beast is anti-Christian religion. It's the false prophet here. Got the lamb's horns on his head, but he says he spoke like the dragon. Remember, Satan comes a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak, here. And so here's the false prophet that uh, we've been warned about all along. And uh, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, Second Corinthians 11. Now, his function is to cause men to worship anti-Christian government, mislead men. Uh, he deceives by signs. Think of oh, some of the signs like uh, Jean Dixon and some prophecies that she made that came true. Or uh, Edgar Casey when he would know things that you couldn't normally know and those kind of things. Uh, always had false signs. Uh, Satan, uh, you know, yet you're in places where uh, they would worship the spirits. You'd have the spirits doing things, healing people. You'd have... Uh, all that type thing as people to deceive. Now, uh, in the effect of this, in verse 16, it says, uh, or verse 15, he was given power 
to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could, it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a remark on his right hand or in his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which the name of the, is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's the, he controls the economies so that if you didn't cooperate again, uh, you couldn't uh, get along. Uh, you you were, didn't have the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast here <clears throat> is uh, not a mark. It's only one time in history. It's throughout history. And uh, it has to do with those who serve uh, Satan. We, you know, remember Jesus told the religious leaders, you're of your father the devil. Well, everyone's either in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. They're in the kingdom of Satan. They've got his mark on them, in a sense, a sign of ownership. And uh, it's on the head, the place of thought. On the right hand, the place of activity. Uh, This would be anti-Christian thought or anti-Christian activity. And uh, the effect of the mark is either economic success or economic oppression. Uh, I think we're back to the black horse here of economic oppression in chapter 6, which is one of the tools that are used to uh, cause people to not become Christians or to persecute them when they do. Now his number, it says in verse 18, uh, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. The number is 666. In Hendrickson's book, he said, this is a very hard passage. And I appreciate him saying that. Uh, Estimate of what that means is that number of man, man was created on the sixth day. Seven, as we've seen, is this number of completeness. Seven uh, lampstands and seven seals and seven trumpets and all this. Seven... Well, man's always coming short of perfection. He always falls short. And uh, so failure upon failure upon failure. And uh, so that's his interpretation of this significance of that number. That uh, the world will always fail, ultimately fail. Man will always fail. And uh, so that's, that's his way of interpreting it. Of course, you've got any number of interpretations where you give certain numbers to certain letters and then you figure out, well... It was Hitler, it was Napoleon, it was so-and-so. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I think probably, if, say, is the Antichrist going to be have some number that would accord to that? I don't know, it's just talking about the beast uh, here uh, that uh, is throughout this whole period of history here. It's not talking about the Antichrist per se at this point. So I'm inclined to think that probably uh, Hendrickson is right about that. Now, we've, uh, we've covered all this, uh, and uh, uh, these uh, two, about these two, two assistants of the, uh, the dragon, in a sense. You've got the beast that persecutes, you've got the lamb, the false prophet here, the second beast, and uh, with the voice of the dragon. Now, you come to uh, the church triumphant and the harvest of the world in Revelation 14. Now, this chapter can be divided into three scenes. First scene is the Lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion. The second scene is the three angels of warning. And the third scene is the twofold harvest of the world. Now, in uh, the first scene, verses 1 to 5, it says, Then I looked, and there was before me the Lamb, 
standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he went. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now we've hit this 144,000 before. That's Remember we said that uh, these picture all the redeemed of all ages. Uh, 144,000, 3 times 4 is 12. That's the Trinity at work through the world, four corners of the earth. Uh, that's 12, and then just multiplied throughout all of history. So 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So when you get your 144,000, which is the other dimensions of the uh, New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem's wall is a cube. 144,000 in every direction here. So we're picturing here all the saved of all ages. We're not just, another way it's pictured is uh, the number that no man can number from every tongue and tribe and pictured symbolically. And uh, But notice these are all in heaven. When we looked at 144,000 before, they were on the earth. Now they're all in heaven. They were sealed on the earth and so on. Now they're all in heaven. Not one of them is missing. Uh, every one of those that gets sealed on the earth makes it to heaven. Every true believer uh, will be there. And you notice how true believers are described. They haven't defiled themselves with women. How many does that leave here? Listen. <laughs> uh, we've all sinned. Uh, we've all lied. Uh, but uh, we're forgiven through the blood of the Lamb, but we're changed. Every true Christian is changed. And he evidences that change by not living like the world lives. He still slips in sin, but he doesn't live in sin. So he's not characterized by defiling himself. He's not characterized by lying and so on. He's characterized by truthfulness. He's characterized uh, by this type of thing. Hold your place and uh, look at the, is it Psalm, Psalm 15? Let's see. Look at Psalm 15, I think it is, uh, where it describes those who go to heaven. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. That's just a description of a true Christian. Uh, that's just another way of saying faith without works is dead. Or, remember John says in First John, uh, He that says that he knows him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Uh, no one keeps his commandments perfectly, but the trend of obedience is a characteristic of a true Christian. And so that's, what's being, that's how he's being described over here. Uh, now, uh, notice they sing this song that only the redeemed can sing. And uh, they are guileless and faultless. Now the second scene uh, is the three angels of warning, verse six of chapter fourteen. Then I looked. Uh, then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, "Fear God and give Him glory." Because the hour of his judgment has come. 
Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Uh, the hour, it says, worship him, uh, and so on, uh, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. We move up again to the hour of judgment, to judgment day, to the end of the world, and so on. And all the way through, as we've gone through the book, we keep hitting the end of the world. We hit it in chapter 6, where... Uh, the sky was rolled up like a scroll and so on. Uh, we hit it when the uh, when you had the two witnesses there and they were caught up and then the, uh, everything is destroyed. And That was the rapture and then the destruction of the world. Then we hit it again. We've hit it several other times. But notice what's said here. And uh, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, uh, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now here we, we hit Babylon. Babylon, and we'll get a whole chapter on Babylon next week, but uh, here we hit Babylon as is the world as a center of seduction. All the things that allure people, uh, whether material things, whether they're hedonistic things, uh, sexual things, all those things that allure you from walking God's way, that's the world. A harlot here. Uh, Babylon the Great, a harlot uh, who makes men drunk with the wine of her adulteries is the way it will be described a little further on. And uh, <clears throat> so Babylon falls. Now Babylon falls all along. Uh, every generation and every all the time Babylon is falling, but Babylon is constantly coming back to life too. So one civilization passes away or one uh, capital or whatever, Rome or, or the, real, the real Babylon or whatever, and yet there's always this allurement on the part of the world. Then you get the third angel, verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, and, and while Babylon falls all along, there is a final fall of Babylon. Okay? And here we come to this. Verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in his image and receives his mark, his ownership, on their forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur uh, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image. Now we talk about when you go to hell, uh, is there annihilation or do you continue to suffer? Sound to me like you continue to suffer forever and ever. Uh, and this is, Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 9 there. Uh, and Luke 16 where you get uh, Lazarus and Dives and uh, Lazarus goes to hell and says, I'm in torment in this place. Send Dives and let him dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, it says in verse 11, The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Two groups here, and uh, one group will be persecuted by the other group, but that's all right. We, we undergo ours here. We suffer here. They suffer there forever. And understanding that helps you keep going. Not that we rejoice over their suffering, uh, but uh, knowing the alternatives here 
as one of the ways God moves us along the path of holiness over against the harlot's temptation and the threat of the world. You remember in Romans 8 where Paul writes to the, the church at Rome and he says, If you live after the flesh, you shall die. Meaning go to hell. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Who's got to mortify the deeds of the body? I do. I do. How do you do it? Through the Spirit. Through the power of the Spirit. Uh, What will motivate me to do it? One of the things that will motivate me to do it is the knowledge of what will happen if I don't do it. That's the whole thing he's appealing to. If you live after the flesh, which is so alluring and so attractive, and so many others are doing it, and they're saying, come on, buddy. If you do this, he says, you will die. He said, well, a true Christian lose his salvation? No. A true Christian won't. A true Christian will listen to that warning, and that warning, the Spirit of God will take that warning and cause him to flee, and, and so on. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The evidence that I'm a son of God is I respond to that warning. But let's don't take the warning away. That's the means God uses to keep us from going in that direction. So we got to blow the trumpet and warn men, warn church members, warn those who profess to be Christians of the awful danger of not putting to death the deeds of the body. You know, that's, that's, so, that's one of the means God uses. That's not the only means. He uses a lot of other means. That guy should just think of what Christ did for me. Out of gratitude, I shouldn't even think of this other. And uh, there are lots of motives, but a motive. And I need that motive of warning when temptation is strong upon me. You say, well, if you just love the Lord enough, you'd never even think about it. You're right, but I don't love Him that much all the time. And so when temptation is strong upon me, that's what I need to hear. Now, um, the, we get the uh, this third, well, excuse me, in uh, verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Notice the two groups here. One whose torment goes on forever and ever, and one who's blessed, and they rest from their labors. And uh, then uh, the harvest of the earth. I looked, and before me there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who is seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Now, that's a harvest of the righteous. That's the harvest of true believers. And essentially you can say, that's the rapture. Okay? Then you get a second harvest. And verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to whom him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grape from the earth's vines because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Uh, They were trampled in the wine press outside the city. And blood flowed out of the press, uh, <clears throat> uh, rising as high as the horses' bridles, 
for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, uh, that's about uh, 180 miles. Now, the here's this harvest of non-Christians. This is an angel from the altar. You remember the altar is where the cries of those who say, "How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood?" and so on. Here's the response to that. And uh, uh, they, this is judgment of the wicked. And uh, and these these grapes are cast into the great wine press of the wrath of God. You say, "Well, why 1,600 as the length of this river of blood?" Well, four, and this is what Hendrickson says, four is, the again, the number of the earth, the four corners of the earth. And so here's judgment on the whole earth. Four times four, 16, times 10, times 10, 1,600. This would be uh, the third complete judgment of the earth as uh, judgment day. Again, we've, we've moved up here and we've hit judgment day. Um, and again, uh, you know, the lesson uh, in all of this is God protecting His church, God in control of all this, that throne uh, in charge of all this, uh, and yet allowing believers to go through it, keeping them, uh, <clears throat> telling them they're going to be persecuted, uh, uh, and yet 144,000 will make it, that the whole number of believers uh, is symbolized by that number. We've got a number really that no man can number from every tongue and tribe and nation who will be kept and will be saved. And uh, yet we need these these warnings to protect us and to keep us. And, uh, of course, there are two groups here, and everybody's in one group or the other group. You know, that's very obvious, and we don't want to be on the wrong side. Let's stop at this point and let you ask questions. Uh, okay, the question is, uh, can Satan talk to God now? That's a, a good question. Uh, certainly... Uh, he's still well let's put it this way you find because uh, you find him accusing remember he accused Job that was prior to the death of Christ and so on but he accused Job of being a hypocrite that he didn't truly uh, love the Lord and the only reason he served the Lord was God blessed him and made had a fence around him and take the fence down let me through says Satan and, and let me take what you've given he'll curse you to your face and God says no he's he loves me no he doesn't so God says alright you can touch everything he has but don't touch him and then and he still trusts him, and he says, well, we didn't carry it far enough. So here's Satan accusing, and remember, he appears before God, and he makes this accusation. And then uh, Jesus referred to, uh, he told Peter, he said, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith would fail not. When you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Satan has desired to have you. I, I think what that means, not just in Satan's heart, but Satan's put in a request to God. He desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Uh, it's a rule of the kingdom that your faith has to be tested. Isn't that a good rule? Amen. If my faith wasn't tested, I would never know if it was real. If I didn't have to overcome some tough things, I wouldn't know my faith was real. And uh, Satan volunteers to do the testing. God, I'd be glad to help you with that. And... Uh, is requested to let me test Satan, let me test Peter here. And uh, Jesus said, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Wasn't he already converted? Yes. Did he need further conversion? Yes. Do I need further conversion? Yes. Uh, I'm converted, but I don't have 20-20 vision. Uh, there's some areas in my life that need straightening out. Peter had an area. Jesus said, uh, 
that uh, Peter, uh, uh, you're going to deny me tonight. Peter said, though all men deny you, I won't deny you. Uh, you think he, he said, Satan is desired to have you. You think Peter would say, Satan's after me? Oh, don't let him get me. Peter said, don't worry about me, Lord. Don't. <laughs> he needed his, his thinking change. And when he writes his first epistle, he says, Satan goes about as a roaring lion. He, his thinking had changed about his power versus Satan's power as far as standing in his own strength. Uh, sure, we can overcome as we stand in the Lord's strength. You know. But uh, so, is, is, is he still putting in those requests? Uh, I'd like to sift uh, Bill. I'd like to sift Ed. I don't know. He, he's sure <laughs> doing everything he can. I don't know if he can still uh, put in a request or not. It wouldn't sound like he could from what we read. It sound like he doesn't have that kind of access. But he certainly goes about uh, trying to undermine our faith. Yes. The image where there's this image of the beast that the false prophet has people worship. That's a good question. Uh, <clears throat> just you had over the years, you think of how uh, different uh, rulers would set up images and have people bow down to them and things of that nature of uh, themselves. And so maybe that's what's involved, uh, just the way the false prophets would have... Well, you, uh, you go to uh, somewhere and you see a big... Go to Thailand, that's the land of images. Man alive, when you go to Thailand, everywhere you look, there's a huge image. And people are bowing down to him and worshiping him and his false religion leading people astray. So something of that nature may be... That's, that's sort of the way that Hendrickson interprets it here. Uh, of course, in the book, uh, uh, the, like, I don't know what Tim LaHaye says, but in the other book I read that likes that book, he's got a literal image being set up by the Antichrist of himself or something like that, and people literally worshiping that. But I'm, and you know, <clears throat> the Antichrist, it will be a real Antichrist, and he could set up an image, but uh, again, I'm inclined to think of this as happening all along here. I think when it says the earth swallows up the river, that's just a way of saying that Satan is not. It's, you got to do. Here's this river comes after the woman. Is she going to drown? No, she's not going to drown. The earth swallows up the river. I think it's just a way of saying the the Satan is not successful in this effort to drown the woman uh, with these lies and persecutions and so on. Is there any definite event predicted before the coming of Christ and has it happened? There are a number of definite events predicted. One event was that Israel would be reestablished in the land, and that has happened. That happened in 1948. Uh, that was uh, uh, a definite event. Uh, there is an individual, the Antichrist, who's got to appear. Another definite, well, another event that's not so definite that you can put your finger on it is that there had to be a falling away on the part of the church. Uh, you read in Second Thessalonians 2 about uh, the church apostatizing and falling away. And you could look at the church today and say, well, great sections of it have fallen away. I had a pastor from a the mainline prayer return denomination in my office this last week. He said, I can't take it any longer. He said, I got I to gotta get out. I got to come in to the PCA. And he began to just share with me the things that were happening in, in his denomination and in his prayer and in his church. And, uh, and I, you know, they're good men still in that denomination and all, but, uh, uh, well, you, you saw in the paper where 80 Methodist ministers uh, defied the Methodist church's order not to marry homosexuals. You saw where that was written up in the paper here just recently. and So large sections of the church uh, have apostatized, but uh, it's hard to say when that's happened, you know. Uh, when you, when does that happen, uh, per se? 
uh, <clears throat> it, it happened in England quite a while back, and yet you still have a faithful element there, and, and all, uh, and it's happening in our country, but yet you still have faithful men. So it's hard to say that, but that's the second thing. Third thing that has to happen, and we'll look at this in some detail, is that Israel has got to get converted. Uh, the, the Jewish people are going to turn to Christ close to the second coming. And there's going to be a, an attack. There's going to be Armageddon. There's going to be a final great battle. And I believe uh, that battle will center around Jerusalem. And, uh, different views of that. Hendricks may differ from that. I need to read it again and see. But uh, there will be, he'll agree there's a final great battle. He may just differ on the fact that it would center around Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, uh, you may believe that too. I need to read up on it. But uh, that's another event that needs to take place. And again, the stage is set. You've got the surrounding nations that hate them, that uh, uh, you've got constant threat of warfare and attack, and there's going to be some point where there will be a full-fledged attack on Israel very close to the second coming of Christ. And we'll look at this in detail uh, in a couple of weeks. Jerry Falwell said that the Antichrist would be Jewish and that he was uh, probably living on earth today. He certainly could be. Uh, it would seem you've got the stage so set with the surrounding nations and all there and their animosity that you get to feel like something like this final attack could happen within a relatively short period of time. And if so, the Antichrist, if he's going to head this up, must be somebody who's currently living. Uh, as to whether he's Jewish or not, the only thing that would indicate uh, that he's Jewish in Scripture is uh, in Daniel, where it talks about him not worshiping the God of his fathers. And uh, that would seem maybe to point that he's Jewish, but he doesn't worship the, the God of Israel, something like that. What should the church's view of the nation of Israel be as, as far as what we would encourage uh, our representatives politically what view to take of it so I believe of course right now Israel is blinded and uh, they are although they're back in the land they haven't yet turned to him and they still uh, they're blind and hardened and uh, so but yet I would hope that our government would continue to try to defend Israel and be a friend to Israel uh, we don't need to defend them when they do something wrong but uh, we do need to defend them I believe and Christians should encourage uh, our government to do that maybe not so much because the Bible pictures what's going to happen there as far as they are going to turn back to him but just uh, I would seem to be the right thing to do uh, to defend them uh, and uh, help them protect themselves uh, the attacks directed against them uh, over and over don't seem to me to be in any way justified uh, just leaving scripture out of it in just terms of their enemies and what their enemies are alleging and attacking them for and so on. So uh, I would hope that our nation would continue to defend Israel and protect Israel and and uh, that uh, Christians would encourage our nation to do that. And failure upon failure upon failure uh, seems to be uh, what's being said there. Uh, sort of like uh, we, we said that the completion of the church was 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10 type thing that maybe this is 666 failure upon failure upon failure that man fails that uh, the world fails Satan fails something like that the rapture uh, well you received yeah according according to uh, according to Newell and Tim LaHaye and so on 
this mark of the beast would be probably a literal mark that you would receive after the church is gone, after true Christians have been raptured, and as your uh, 144,000 converted Jews are out evangelizing, there'd be those uh, who would receive the mark of the beast, and if you didn't receive the mark of the beast, you economically, you might not be able to buy or sell or whatever, and so there'd be this economic oppression. But I would say that economic oppression is going on now, the mark of the beast is going on now, and uh, that when Christ comes back, that'll be the end of it. That'll be the end of the world. Well, every Christian, every Christian, is sealed by the Spirit of God, and so he he doesn't have he he doesn't serve the beast, so he doesn't have the mark of the beast. Uh, the question is, does the temple have to be rebuilt first? Uh, the passage that usually is argued that it does have to be rebuilt is from Ezekiel chapter forty through forty-eight, where. You get a, a picture of the temple back in Ezekiel's day where he, he pictures that the te- temple had been destroyed, uh, was destroyed during Ezekiel's day while Ezekiel's in captivity in Babylon. Uh, and uh, yet he is given this prophecy uh, which describes a, a beautiful temple, uh, much larger than the old temple, and uh, really even seemingly maybe larger than than uh, Jerusalem. And uh, uh, that... Uh, you have those who say, well, that was the temple they were supposed to build when they came back. They didn't rebuild that temple, they built another. Or you'd have those who say, that's the temple they're going to build uh, when the Antichrist comes. Uh, or, or, excuse me, let's say, that's the temple they're going to build someday before Christ returns. Let me put it that way. That's the, that's the temple they're, supposed to, they're going to rebuild. I would say the temple that Ezekiel describes is the ideal temple that we read about here Oh, excuse me, it's, it's not just the heavenly temple, it's, it's the true Israel. We are part of that rebuilt temple, and it's much bigger because it's worldwide and so on. It's uh, made up of living stones, and that's what Ezekiel was picturing. But you do get another reference to the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God. And uh, that could be another reason why some people think he would be Jewish. Um, look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. That would be the rapture. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come or is at hand. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until... We raise the question, were there certain things that had to happen first? Here's one thing that has to happen. Until... The rebellion occurs, uh, or the apostasy, or the falling away. The Greek word is apostasia. And uh, so here's this apostasy, and the world can't fall away. It doesn't have anything to fall away from, but the church can fall away from the truth. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. That's the Antichrist. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God, or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, here's the Antichrist, and he sets himself up in God's temple. Could be that means the temple's got to be rebuilt, or it could mean that he'd be a church leader. Take your choice. <laughs> All right, need to wrap it up here. I'd be glad to answer any questions later on. Singles, are going to eat, I believe. So let's have prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word, and uh, we pray that you would... Uh, guide us as we continue to study it. Father, use it to practical ways in our lives to uh, make us urgent about the need of others for Christ, to make us uh, uh, careful about Satan and his 
river of lies, Father, and deception about Babylon and its appeal, Father. And uh, we pray that we might put on the armor of God. And we pray that we might be faithful. And we pray that we might hold out the light. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.